the message today, that's uh, the gist of it right here. This is uh, one that's, that's a reality that, that we're going to be talking about. And before we jump into 2 Peter 3, you can open the Bible, your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. And we'll jump over to 1 Thessalonians 5 at some point. But there's something I wanted to share with you. Some of the material that we're going to get into this morning can be, it can seem kind of, wow, um, unbelievable. It can seem like, wow, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around what God says in his word is to come. And so because of that challenge that we have in our human understanding of God's existence, his creation, his plan, and his future coming, and before that, judgment, I wanted to go flip back a, a couple chapters to 2 Peter chapter 1 and just talk about a few scriptures real quick before we actually get into today's text. Um, the name of the lesson today, the day of the Lord, God's patience and his promises God's patience and his promises the day of the Lord so seven key points that we're going to be talking about today and one of them actually there were eight God's patience means salvation I can't believe I didn't put it in the notes but God's patience means salvation hopefully you are all already saved and believers we are children of God we are adopted into his family but so many others do not believe, and their destination is eternal separation from God, which we're going to talk about today for those who would rebel against him. Well, the reason Jesus has not returned yet is so that more people can come to know him and be saved. So here are some other points. God's word is truth. His promises are perfect. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Mockers and scoffers will come. God's timing is not our timing. We wear different watches. Uh, God's judgment is expected. The day of the Lord will come. And it'll come like a thief in the night. Holy living. How then should we live? Talking about how Christians should be in these last days. And growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. So if you flip over to 2 Peter chapter 1 just want to read this and so this time of the evidence of fulfilled prophecy and we have sometimes we have no idea what that means that it's things are fulfilled we go well predictions that were hundreds or in some cases thousands of years ago and Jesus fulfilled 332 distinct Old Testament predictions which is just astronomical to think about one man God, man, fulfilling these things. So, and so we have, Peter writes, the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Which, which you do well to heed. What does that mean? Heeding the word. Well, if, if it's true, we better take heed. There's a question that's asked in 2 Peter 3. How then shall we live? What kind of people ought we to be knowing all this? That's one of the key questions we're going to ask today. Peter asks it in 2 Peter. His experience, just a couple 
um, scriptures before this, a couple of verses before, he mentions the transfiguration. He was there. He was one of the select few that actually went up on that holy mountain and saw Jesus transfigured. And Moses and Elijah were there, appeared to him, and they were speaking about things to come. Peter had that experience, so that's what he was referring to. He says, now we have the prophetic word confirmed. And um, this is the, the next part here I wanted to get to, which, which says, knowing this first. So how can we trust the word of God? What we're about to read in, in 2 Peter 3, it's like, oh my goodness, so astronomical, so fantastical, so unbelievable. But what does this say? First, no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Another translation says as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Even in Peter's day, um, Enemies of Jesus twisted, tried to twist Old Testament prophecies and they tried to give them bizarre meanings to exclude Jesus and deny his deity. But Peter says that its meaning is evident and was confirmed by others and fulfilled prophecy. Jesus, at least 332 distinct Old Testament predictions regarding the Messiah, Jesus fulfilled perfectly. And so one note on that I wanted to share with you from a a study Bible, one of the study Bibles I use. Verse 121, when it says, by an act of human will, as scripture is not of human origin, neither is it the result of human will. The emphasis in the phrase is that no part of scripture was ever at any time produced because men wanted it so. The Bible is not the product of human effort. The prophets, in fact, check this out, the prophets of old, in the Old Testament, they sometimes wrote what they could not fully understand. In other words, God was speaking, that's the Holy Spirit, God was speaking through them, and they're writing this down going, what, really? Can you imagine being an Old Testament prophet before what we know now, hindsight's twenty twenty. We've got the New Covenant, the New Testament. These guys were writing things down to, about the future going, you know, wow. So I find that to be just such a helpful note. Um, but these men were nonetheless faithful to write what God revealed to them, even though at times they didn't understand it. They were looking ahead so far to the future, and that's even to the last days today that we're living in. One more note. The Holy Spirit, thus, is the divine author and originator, the producer of scriptures. In the Old Testament alone, the human writers refer to their writings as the words of God 3,800 times in the Old Testament. In the process of writing scripture, God, the Holy Spirit, superintended them so that using their own individual personalities, thought processes, and vocabulary, they composed and recorded without error the exact words God wanted written. The original copies of scripture are therefore God-breathed, inspired, without error. We need to know this, and we do, 
these are just a couple scriptures I find in, in 2 Peter 1 that reinforce this as we go into what we're going to study today. So that was free. Thank you. <laughs> um, last week, we also read from Jude. We studied Jude, which is amazing, such an amazing expose on false teachers and false teachers, teachings and mockers and scoffers. And we used, shared this verse, 2 Peter 3.3, 3, know this, first of all, in the last days, mockers will come. And so, I don't know if you remember that from last week's study, but Peter brings it up again. And Peter was written, most believe, he, it was written before Jude, so that Jude heard of Peter's writings, because a lot of people were, were um, uh, passing this along by word of mouth before we have what we have today, the, the scrolls, the scriptures, and what we have. They were verbally passing it around. So P, uh, Jude knew what Peter was writing. He says, yeah, absolutely, I've got it. So Jude wrote so much about false teachers and mockers, which we studied last week that sets us up to right now. So um, let's go to 2 Peter 3 now as we're going into today's text. God's promise is not slack. I like that word. So it says, and I'm reading from the New King James here. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the word that, that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we... According to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So now let's dig in a little bit. Peter already wrote 
of the importance of being reminded. That's how he starts chapter 3 out. It's important to be reminded, isn't it, with all the things we have to think about and deal with in our lives. Um, But here, he wanted to emphasize what should be known in the light of the coming of Jesus and the prophecies surrounding his coming. So, I don't know who made this point, but the, the purest of minds need to be stirred up every now and then, right? No matter where your mind and your, we are in the process of sanctification in this uh, striving to be holy and, and live as unto the Lord, we need to be stirred up from time to time, some of us more than others, and be reminded um, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before Peter knew the importance of reinforcing the scriptural, divinely inspired message um, from the Old Testament spoken before. That's what he's referring to, the prophets. And that are, that, that he also mentioned, though, what was contemporary in his own day, the commandment of us, he said. I don't know what your translation says. Um, I have two different translations here. By the the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken, spoken by your apostles. It's worded a little differently in the New King James, but he's saying the holy prophets were divinely inspired. And he's also saying what Paul wrote was divinely inspired and what we, the apostles of the Lord, have written by the divine guidance and instruction of the Holy Spirit is inspired and without error. Do you understand what he's saying? Not only the Old Testament, but he's saying the New Testament as well. He clearly believed the words of Scripture were important, the words themselves, not just the meaning behind the words. Um, By placing the messengers of the New Covenant on the same level as messengers of the Old Covenant, Peter understood the authority of the New Testament. Think about at his time, even as it was being written, even as it was being formed, Peter probably didn't know who was writing these other books, James, Jude, Paul, John. You know, he didn't know. Titus, Philemon, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, these, these gospels and the whole New Testament. But he understood the authority of it, which is a point we need to remember. I think we take that for granted when we read sometimes. So he understood that Jesus gave uh, his apostles the inspired authority to bring forth God's message to the new covenant community, and he understood uh, from passages like Matthew um, 16, 19, where Jesus gave the apostles authority to bind and loose, uh, much as the authoritative rabbis of their day. So Peter's referring here in the early part of chapter 3 to the apostles of Jesus Christ, and it's they and they alone who are put on a level with the Old Testament prophets. What, I, what do I mean, they and they alone? We don't want to get too much into Roman Catholicism and some of the beliefs of traditions, but they believe that they have successors in authority, the same authority, the popes and the successors of the popes throughout the centuries have the same authority as the apostles, and that's not at all what's in Scripture. Significantly, Peter saw this authority invested in the apostles, not just him alone. He would think it's strange for someone to take that authority and credit it to someone else later down the road. And that's, he wrote that. It was pretty clear. So 
When he talks about the last days, scoffers will come. As again, we studied last week in Jude, Christians should not be surprised to find that there are those who scoff at the idea of God, the existence of God, the scriptures, and of course, the return of Jesus. Uh, Peter told us in advance. Jude told us. Paul writes. They warned. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said, Every time a blasphemer, a scoffer, mocker, opens his mouth to deny the truth of revelation, he will help confirm us in our conviction of the very truth which he denies. The Holy Ghost told us by the pen of Peter that it would be so. And now we see how truly he wrote. So hindsight now, we're looking back on what Peter wrote going, wow, have scoffers and mockers increased in our day and age. So they will come. They're here in the last days. Um, With the advent of Jesus, the last chapter of human history had opened, even though it was not completed. And when it talks about these next couple things, walking according to their own lusts, where, where is the promise of his coming? This is the message of scoffers, right? Um, they have a clear moral problem. Theirs is not just an intellectual problem. It's a, clearly a moral problem because it mentions they want to live according to their own lusts. Um, it says all things continue, they forget this, all things continue uh, from the beginning of creation. The scoffers base their message on the idea that things have always been right where they are now, just the same, and that God has not intervened in human history at all. God will not do anything new in his plan uh, for creation or salvation or redemption or redeeming mankind. So in 2 Peter 3, 5 through 7, it talks about the error that scoffers make. And here's what it says. They willfully forget... They willfully forget. I'm just checking out this other translation here. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice. <laughs> that's, more, that's a New American Standard. That's a little bit more generous than the New King James, which says, on purpose, they're ignoring it. They willfully forget. They deny it. They don't want to remember it. Um, let's see. They willfully forget. Okay, let's go back and remember one point that we did also mention last week, that the, what happened in the Old Testament, it, it is divinely inspired and it is true, correct? So there was actually a worldwide catastrophic flood, okay? Because G- otherwise we said last week Jesus is a liar, if that's not true, because he referred to Noah, and so did Paul, and Peter does here too. They willfully forget God's creation and the judgment at that time that God poured out on the earth in the days of Noah. That was a flood. And then he gave us a covenant, the rainbow, that I will never um, flood the earth again in anger or judgment. But what we just read, how is it going to happen? By fire. Okay? So a literal belief in creation, in Adam and Eve, and in Noah's flood are essential for a true understanding of what we're studying now and for what God's going to be doing. So to deny these things, which a lot of people do, or they're just, quote, fables, right? That means God's word is not inspired. It's not error-free. It's not perfect. So how can we follow it? So they scoff and they, de- they deny that. To deny this undermines the very foundation of our faith. Today, unfortunately, some churches don't teach the Old Testament as literal 
inspired truth. Some churches. I'm not talking about mockers and scoffers. I'm talking about some churches. No time to get into all that. But when it says that by the word of God, the heavens were of old, it's talking about creation. God created everything. The Bible clearly teaches that the active agent in creation was God's spoken word. He spoke, and the creation came into being in six literal 24-hour days. That's what we believe. I want to share a note with you from another study Bible here. First of all, it says, the world that existed perished. How did it perish? Being flooded with water at that time. Peter's point is that things on this earth have not always continued the way they are now. The earth was different dramatically different, catastrophically different after it was flooded. It was much different than when he first created it, okay? So we shouldn't scoff at the promise that he will make it different once again, judging it not with water, but with fire, as we'll get into in a minute. The same word of God that created all matter judged the world in the flood and will one, bring, one day again bring judgment on the earth. Where's that note? Okay, one translation says destroyed, uh, being flooded with water. And it's talking about a universal flood according to Genesis 7:11. This is interesting now. This is a, a point that I needed to be reminded of. The flood occurred from two different directions. Okay? First, the bursting open of the sources of water below Below the earth, the sources of water burst open, the earth cracked open, and gas, dust, water, air burst up. And um, it says the breakup of the canopy, when hit by all that upward uh, flow, which sent the water from above crashing down on the earth. The deluge, deluge was so cataclysmic that the inhabitants of the earth were all destroyed. Isn't that fascinating? It wasn't just, how did he flood the earth? It wasn't just rain. Like we think, oh, it started raining. There was water in the earth, under the earth, that roared up and exploded through the crust, and the water from above came crashing down from the canopy. That is cataclysmic. Not as dramatic as a little bit of rain starting, and then it kept raining, and the water rose, and then it kept raining, and the water rose. That's not an accurate description of what really happened in the flood. I found that to be fascinating. And then it says, reserved for fire. Now we're getting into the future judgment. Wow, God will destroy the heavens and the earth by fire. There's so many scriptures, Daniel, Micah, Malachi, Matthew, 2 Thessalonians. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, in the present universe, the heavens are full of stars, comets, asteroids, right? The core of this earth is also filled with a flaming, boiling, liquid lake of fire, the temperature of which is some 12,400 degrees Fahrenheit in the earth's core. Okay? The human race is separated from the fiery core of the earth by only a thin 10-mile crust. 
So you go, man, how is this going to happen? Um, reserved for fire until the day of judgment. How is that going to happen? Think about what some of these prophets had to write about. Think about what the Apostle John wrote about when he was getting these visions of heaven in the future from Jesus and the angel of the Lord. He's going, okay, I'm writing this down. He had no idea. We look back and go, oh, what he saw could have been, uh, he, he saw like maybe locusts, but maybe there were just all these helicopters. Talking about Armageddon, all these different things, right? What, what he saw looked like, he says, looked like the appearance of as if it were. He uses these descriptors a lot in Revelation. One thing that they didn't have back there, and the old prophets are writing about destruction and disintegration of things and the earth. They're going, wow, how is this going to happen? Well, man was able to create nuclear bombs. They didn't have that when the apostles and the prophets were writing this, right? Just a, just a thought, a little disturbing, but that's a thought. Um, The lesson taught by the flood was this is a moral universe. That sin will not forever go unpunished. And that Jesus even himself used the flood to point to this moral teaching. That was, remember, Matthew 24, 37 through 39. So Jesus referred to this. So now in verse 8, 2 Peter 3, verse 8, now we're getting into God's timing here. Do not forget, yeah, let's, let's do that. In fact, I want to show you, um, we can only imagine what this is going to be like, but there's, <laughs> there's a provocative image I found online. It's like, okay, it's going to implode from within. There's going to be fire burning around it, and it's going to be this lightning from above. Who knows? But this is an idea of total destruction. A lot of people are fighting to save the earth right now. Recycling is good, all right? We need to pick up after ourselves. We need to take care of the planet that God gave us to live on. But when you get into this environmental extremism like we see today, the things of nature and the earth becomes more important than human beings that are created in God's image. So you will work more to try to save the earth and the planet than trying to save babies in the womb or trying to care for the elderly or trying to love your neighbors and care about people. Does that make sense? So there's a wicked agenda behind this climate, quote, science and trying to save the earth. Um, And we know the end, dissolved, destroyed, whatever word you want to use there. But the, God's timing, with the day, uh, with the Lord, I'm sorry, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack about concerning his promise. Before we started today, we said, God's patience means salvation. Get that down, friends. God's patience means salvation. If it were up to me, I want him to come back now. I want to go home. I'm done with this place. But we have work to do while we're still here. All right? What seems like forever to us, especially when we're praying about something, (laughs) to God, 
the creator who is outside of time. What seems like forever to us is just such a short time to him. So just an hour may seem to be an eternity for a child. Even for like a kid, you know, you, you go on trips. When we, were, when we were young, I remember going on trips and I would bug my dad, are we there yet? In the back seat, are we there yet? You know, what, what seemed like it was probably a 20-minute drive, 30-minute drive. I'm, I'm thinking, we've been in the car for days. You know, the, the timing is so different. Well, multiply that times 100 or 1,000, and that's our timing compared to God's timing. Does that make sense? All right, moving on. So Peter got this. If you go to Psalm, or you can write this down. Psalm 90 verse 4 says, For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, and like a watch in the night. A thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past. Um, Charles Spurgeon says, All things are equally near and present to his view. The distance of a thousand years before the occurrence of an event is no more to him than would be the interval of a day. With God, indeed, there is neither past, present, nor future. He takes for his name the I Am. He is the I Am. I am in the present. I am in the past. I am in the future. Just as we say of God that he is everywhere, so we must say of him that he is always. He is everywhere in space. He is everywhere in time. Charles Spurgeon gives us a little bit of understanding of that verse. So Peter did not give some prophetic formula saying that a prophetic day somehow equals a thousand years. He communicated a general principle here regarding how we see time and how God sees time. Does that give you some help now when you're praying about something? Maybe you've been praying about something for years. God hears God hears our prayers. His answer? Yes, no, wait, maybe, not yet. So when he's talking about salvation here, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some would consider slowness. Maybe you've been praying for a family member, a loved one to be saved, to come to know the truth. They have been deceived and you're praying for them. In some cases, to come back to the Lord. And it's just taken years. God hears, he knows, he sees and he has an answer. Just one more note on that, that he's not willing that any perish. It's as if God declared that... It's not as if God declared that nobody perishes ever, no sinners perish, because he's given us free will. It's his will that everyone would come to know the truth and come to know him and come to place their faith in Christ. That is God's will. But a loving God would not force anyone into heaven in his presence for eternity against their will. Does that make sense? So when this says, it is his will that no one perish, yes, it is, um, Peter's statement reflects God's heart of love, like John 3.16. He he loved the the whole world, and he gave his son as his compassionate sorrow, even in the righteous judgment of the wicked that's to come. God doesn't take joy in this coming judgment and the destruction and disintegration of the earth that he created and the heavens. He is not up there going, oh, watch this, just to show his power. 
No, he created every human being in his image. It's the same thought expressed. Ezekiel 33, 11 says, As I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. That's his love for mankind, you guys. He wants everyone to be saved, but he knows that they won't. He very clearly says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Ezekiel 33, 11. But he does say, Peter's, through Peter, the day of the Lord will come. So he guarantees it's coming. And then he says, how? Boom, like a thief. Are you ever prepared for a thief to break into your house? Well, you might have some precautions, right? But you're never fully prepared, meaning you'll, you will be surprised even though you may have some preparations in your house. He delays his coming, judgment, because he wants more people to be saved. And when Jesus does return, he will come at a time that will surprise many, even, sadly, Christians. There's a lot of Christians living for this world. That's, that's a whole other message. The ultimate result of his coming, a total transformation of this present world in which the heavens will pass away and the elements will be destroyed, or as it describes here, melt with fervent heat. Now we're talking about the day of the Lord. So now flip over to 1 Thessalonians 5, the first five verses. What translation here? I'll stick with the New King James for this one. 1 Thessalonians 5, but concerning... I'll read, just to save some time, I'll read while I still hear pages flipping, forgive me. Uh, but concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write you. That's an interesting sentence, right? Concerning, what does he mean by that? You have no need that I should write you? Meaning they, they already know it. They've already been told. It's already been written. They've read the letters. They've, they've talked about it. They know. They have been instructed. Concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write you. And then he says, for you yourselves know perfectly, what? Do they know? What do they know? That the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say, men say, peace, safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you... Thank God that's in there, right? <laughs> but you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. And then it says, you are all sons of the day, and we are not of the night, nor of the darkness. So stop sleeping, in other words, he's saying. Um, the Thessalonians were taught, they learned about the day of the Lord, the return of Jesus, and other prophetic matters. Paul taught them. He, he wrote Thessalonians about the times and seasons. There's a verse in Daniel that says, God, I think it's Daniel chapter 2, God changes times and seasons. I'm going to explain that here just to differentiate between the two. Um, they had an idea of the prophetic times they lived in, and they could discern the seasons of their present culture. That's what Paul was saying when he said, I don't need to write you. You already know perfectly well. We're impressed with the idea that Paul was only with the Thessalonian church, as we know from Scripture, for a couple weeks. And he was bold enough to say they already knew this stuff. It's like they had it down. Impressive. Um, he taught them about the times and seasons. Uh, 
Jesus criticized the religious leaders of his day during that time because they could not discern the times. Remember he said, you guys, you can look at the sky and, and predict the weather, but you have no idea about the this, this times and the seasons that you're in. But you can say, yeah, it's going to rain tomorrow or whatever. So Jesus even mentioned that. So let's uh, talk about times and seasons. What does time mean? What does seasons mean? The, the first, times means duration, whether a longer or a shorter period. The second, seasons, means the characteristics of the period. Does that make sense? Times, short, long, duration. Seasons, a season can be days, weeks, months, maybe years. You can have a season of blessing in your life. You can have a season of poor health. You can have a season of trials. You can have a season of God's favor. Seasons last longer. Now, we're talking about seasons in light of the, uh, what's happening around us, of a period or understanding the times. Look at, huh, I don't need to say much more about this. Look at American culture. That's a season that we're living in, where evil is being called good and good is being called evil. We're in this season, unfortunately. And we have to know how to respond to this with truth and love. So the first, times, deals with the measurement of time. The second, seasons, with the suitable or critical nature of the time. Then it says, uh, the day of the Lord so comes. Paul quoted Old Testament ideas here, and he says, the phrase, the day of the Lord, is that this is God's time. Man had his time, and Paul's saying this is God's time, the day of the Lord. Of the Lord. In the ultimate sense, the day of the Lord is fulfilled with Jesus returning in glory, but also judging the earth. So that's according to, to what Paul wrote there. Still in, in 1 Thessalonians here, um, one point I, that I thought was great, and I, don't, I think I got this from the Blue Letter Bible online. This is phenomenal. The day of the Lord is familiar Old Testament expression. It denotes the day, three things, when God intervenes in history to judge his enemies, deliver his people, and establish his kingdom. One more time. It denotes the day, the day of the Lord, when God intervenes in human history to judge the world, judge his enemies, deliver his children, his people, and establish his future kingdom. That's why it says, you yourselves perfectly know that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. They knew. They had been taught, so they knew it. They didn't need to be reminded, like maybe Peter was writing. <laughs> um, peace and safety. Can't dive into that as much as I would like to right now. But the unexpected nature of that day will be a tragedy for the unbeliever. They're looking at world... Uh, events in terms of their godless worldview. There is no God. The Bible is not true. It's just, you know, history book or whatever. They're looking at and they're saying, it's, it's yeah, I think it's, uh, it's, it's a peaceful time right now. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You see people, world leaders saying this all the time. Look around at our world. Is it a peaceful world? But there will be people in the end Times in the last days saying peace and safety and, and promoting those ideas and, and it'll come on them. That day will come on them like a thief, the Bible says. 
they shall not escape. Um, verse 4 and 5, you are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief in 1 Thessalonians 5. Yeah, we are not of the night nor of darkness. God has made us sons of the light. We have the light of Christ in us. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Um, so now we just simply have to live up to what God has created us to live for and who he has made us to be. Okay. I don't want to be redundant, but in, in one more point on this. In some respect, the coming of Jesus will surprise everybody in a way. Believers, even though we are prepared, even though we know, like the Thessalonian church, you know, you don't have, Paul said, I don't need to write you. You know about it, but yet when it happens, we're still going to go, oh, it's, it's, it's now. <laughs> it's today. We'll still be surprised, but we won't be unprepared. So turn over now. This is a bonus section here. Turn over to flip a couple pages to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Actually, just one page. It should be on the very next page of your Bible. And do I have that? Oh, there it is. Couldn't remember if I had that there. So let's read this. I'm going to read the New King James. It might be a little different. So... Starting verse 6, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. When? When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. But he doesn't stop there. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction, and here's the worst part, away from the presence of the Lord eternally and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who believed for our testimony to you was believed. In other words, he was writing to the Thessalonians there. They believed the gospel. They believed the testimony. So we usually think that God is absent when we suffer. He's talk there was persecution. The Thessalonian church, there was persecution. Maybe that's why they were paying attention. Maybe that's why they were so focused on, on God and spiritual things because the persecution draws you closer, doesn't it? We usually think that God is absent when we suffer and that our suffering calls God's righteous judgment into question. But Paul here took the exact opposite and insisted that the Thessalonian suffering was evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Where suffering is coupled with righteous endurance, God's work is done. In their case, the fires of persecution and tribulation were like purifying fires of a refiner burning away the dross from the gold and purifying them. Most people, or many people, not most, but many people question God's righteous judgment. The very fact that we're talking about this today because it is true and it is, is in the word of God 
the inspired words of a holy God and they would say, they, they would question that. Well, now who are we? We just put our God hat on. How can you, how can you do this? How can you allow that? Well, now we put our, we just took the pilot seat, God seat there, and that's not for us to take. But many people would question that. And what we're reading today, that's why a lot of churches don't teach on this. Is it fun? No. For us, hallelujah. But for those who will be judged and be separated from God for eternity, our hearts should break. But his judgment is based on the great spiritual principle that it's a righteous thing, for example, what he's saying here, for God to repay those who do evil. Since God is righteous, he is a good judge, a righteous judge. Would you ever, can you ever imagine a court case where a, a child rapist, a pedophile, and murderer would be let off for good behavior or because maybe the judgment would be too harsh. No, we want justice. He will, he will repay all evil and it will all be judged and accounted for either at the cross as ours, sins are forgiven, or in hell. It will all be judged or accounted for either at the cross or in hell. Whew, I know, I know, this is heavy, you guys, but this should give us a sense of urgency to share those who are lost, who think they know the truth because they created their own and created a God in their own image. But I love this part. And to give you who are troubled rest. The Thessalonian Christians were persecuted and they had tribulation. And God used it for his glory. The time of persecution would not last forever. So a day of rest is promised for every believer. And then verses 8 through 10 talking about the flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God um, for the persecutors, even today, those who are persecuting across in, a, in different parts of the world, especially Christians, and they, a judgment will be handed down to them. And as one word we already read, retribution, and it will be swift for the persecutors. But let's talk about the words inflaming fire. Listen to this. It isn't the fire... Do you remember in Daniel 3 um, when the three Jewish, the young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in the fire? The fire didn't burn them. Isn't that interesting? That God can have hell where fire does not completely burn? Otherwise, they couldn't last forever, right? Eternity. You couldn't burn in hell for eternity if you were physically burned up. But the spirits will live forever. That's interesting. It's not the fire that makes hell what it is, the fiery furnace, so to speak. It's being apart from God and separated from him is what makes hell, hell. Apart from anything good, apart from any blessing, apart from any righteousness, apart from God's presence, 
It's not just the fire. We read these judgments about fire and the earth being disintegrated. We go, wow, it's going to be hot. But how is it supposed to last forever and not burn everything and destroy everything? It's God's eternal separation. Wow. I found that to be a very interesting note. So it's not wrong for God to take vengeance. But we understand vengeance a little differently than what the word means in the ancient Greek language. The word rendered vengeance doesn't have an association of vindictiveness, as we might want vengeance on some of our enemies. Um, it is based on the same root as the word rendered righteous in verse 5 and 6, and it has the idea of a firm administration of unwavering justice. That's a different idea of vengeance, right? A firm administration of unwavering justice. This is the idea of the application of full justice on the offender. We think if you're innocent, I want justice, right? But there will also be justice applied toward the persecutors and the offenders and the ungodly. Nothing more, nothing less. Full justice. And when it talks about everlasting destruction as we move through uh, and finish here in this uh, little couple verses in 2 Thessalonians, um, yeah. I, I want to share another quote by Spurgeon. You can tell he's one of my favorites. I use him a lot. He said, this is the fact that we will admire what God has done in us and others when we're in glory. I can't imagine that, and I've got a pretty good imagination. Spurgeon writes, we thought, do I have this quote? I don't think I do. We thought he would do great things, but this, this surpasseth, surpasseth conception. Every saint will be a wonder to himself. I thought my bliss would be great, but not like this. All his brethren will be a wonder to the perfected believer in glory. He will say, I thought the saints would be perfect, but I never imagined such a transfiguration of excessive glory that would be put on each one of them. I could not have imagined my Lord to be so good and gracious. We can only imagine, just like the song, what will we be doing with Jesus and that glory, that state of glory that we will be in. We can get a glimpse and have our own human limited understanding of imagining that. So I could almost wrap up with this, but we need to jump back to Second Peter. When it says here in Thessalonians, Paul writes, because our testimony among you was believed. This shows the difference between one destined for judgment and one destined for glory. The difference is the belief in the message that Paul preached, the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the difference, that's the dividing line. And let's go back to 2 Peter chapter 3 now, uh, in verse 11. A um, couple more verses here. Talk about living in light of the last days, in light of God's judgment and his promise, holy and godly living. Um, <laughs> in light of what we describe and what maybe we'll get to a little bit more, I, we, we pretty much summed it up, though, without getting extensively into like the, the atomic makeup of the world. In fact, I've got one more note I want to share with you about that because it's, it's just like, wow, we think, how can everything be gone? Everything that we see here, how can it just be destroyed? Um, in light of this fact, 
one of the questions is, what manner of persons ought you to be? That's right here. Whoop, next one. Key scripture, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. This is it, right? What, what manner of people? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm behind. I'm behind on the PowerPoint here. There we go. What manner of persons ought you to be? In light of what we've read, and as we started out today, knowing that it is true, divinely inspired, and this book is inerrant, which, again, some people don't believe, but we know it's true. And we have the prophetic confirmations to back it up in light of what we know what we've been describing here how should we live in america i know there's people that will be watching this uh, video from different countries praise god thank you for vimeo and facebook and youtube and all that but for us here our our culture is like wow it's hard to live in this world Right? and not be of this world, but that's who we are as Christians. So a quick note on this word dissolved. One translation says things will be dissolved. Another translation says things will be destroyed. It says the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, right? The elements are the atomic components into which matter is ultimately divisible, which make up the composition of all the created matter. Peter means that the atoms, neutrons, protons, and electrons are all going to disintegrate. The, it says that the earth and its works, the whole of the physical, natural earth in its present form, with its entire universe, will be consumed what manner of people ought we to be how then should we live knowing this the corrupting of the universe by man and satan will have been terminated and judged finally and forever and we will be a whole lot better off than we are now and a whole lot better off than those who have not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. What manner of people? Um, do I, oh, I have this quote. One more quote. Ah, Spurgeon again. Where is it? Oh, this one. No, where? Did I not copy that? Oh, I didn't. I'm sorry. Ah. I'll have to read it to you. He said, The king is coming. He is coming to his throne and to his judgment. Now a man does not go up to a king's door and there talk treason, and men do not sit in a king's audience chamber when they expect him every moment to enter and there speak ill of him. The king is on his way and is almost here. You are at his door. He is at yours. What manner of people ought you to be? How can ye sin against one who is so close at hand? Charles Spurgeon. So now it says, verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Peter says there is a sense in which we can hasten the Lord's return. How does that work? 
It's a remarkable thing that we can actually do things that might impact or affect the return of Jesus, and it's hard to understand until you understand this. Um, in holy conduct and godliness. Well, it's not by our works or holiness, but Romans 11.25 says, um, God's prophetic focus on Israel will resume, because Israel is a key, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. What does that mean? When the full number of every non-Jew believer comes to Christ, when that full number is finally completed, the fullness of the Gentiles, Romans eleven twenty five. So there is, as far as evangelism, we can also hasten the Lord by you know, sharing the gospel. If that's true, and it, and it is, because Paul writes about it, so it's like, wow, we, we can actually speed this thing up by evangelizing the world and by sharing the gospel with the lost. But we can also hasten the Lord's coming through prayer. Daniel asked for a speedy fulfillment of prophecy regarding captive Israel in Daniel chapter 9. And as the book ends, this word of God, the book ends in Revelation 22:20. 20, John saying, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Come on. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. I know all this is going to happen. I know all this is going to take place. Even so, come, come, come on back. Return, return. So we can hasten by sharing the gospel, and we can hasten it by prayer. This was a new thing that I, that I was reminded of as I was studying these uh, passages of Scripture. Now, uh, uh, we're about ready to wrap it up. Yeah, you know, when, when Paul said a couple times, Paul wrote, finally, brethren, and wrote two more chapters. <laughs> so I'm parenthetically inserting that here. But a, a key point from this chapter, God will genuinely make a new heaven or new heavens and a new earth. Isaiah 65:17 says, "For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth." And then what does it say? Not only that, so that's big enough. And then he says, "And the former shall not be remembered or come to mind." What do you want to save the planet for and not save human beings? Revelation, um, oh, oh, wait, wait, I skipped something. Verse 13, a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Oh, hallelujah. No evil, no wickedness, no mourning, nor pain, nor crying, nor tears, nor misery, nor sorrow, nor persecution, nor disease. A place in which righteousness dwells. In God's plan of the ages, this happens after the millennial earth ruled by Jesus Christ. Revelation 21.1 says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So John was privileged with this vision. You and I can only imagine. But John saw it. And he tried to describe a lot of these things in the book of Revelation. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And then he said, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. John saw that state of existence where the first heaven and first, first earth passed away and there was a new heaven and new earth. And then 
Let's skip to the very end, just verse 17 and 18, and we're concluding. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, it just says beware, be steadfast, persevere. I'm I'm paraphrasing here. But one of my favorite verses that Peter ever jotted down ended this book, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and now and forever. Amen. When we say the word forever now, after reading what we just did in light of what we just have studied, that word forever takes on a new meaning, doesn't it? Since you know this beforehand, we who know the day of the Lord, we wait for it with patient expectation because it's coming. We don't know when, no one knows when. No one but the Father. We must persevere. That's the, that's the key. Since we know this, we persevere and at times endure. But let's talk real quick, growing in grace and knowledge, those two things. I love John um, 1, 14. It says Jesus Christ is uh, full of grace and full of truth. I've always thought that to be such a wonderful, perfect combination and balance. Grace and truth. One without the other is a little out of balance, isn't it? You get grace and truth. Here it talks about the grace and the knowledge of the truth, the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Grace is not merely the way God draws us to him in the beginning. It's also the way we grow and stay steadfast. We can never grow apart from the grace and knowledge of our Lord. We never, never, never grow out of grace. Why? God's grace is infinite so wrapping it up what does it mean so the grace of god and the knowledge of god he emphasizes that to to end peter's final statements to future generations to future believers grow in the grace and knowledge this means the study of scripture learning about jesus god's character his nature what what do we talk about today you might say judgment no we talked about god's holiness and righteousness. I mean, judgment and what's, what's going to happen to the earth and the heavens, that's just an after effect of a holy, righteous, perfect, just God. Um, but more importantly than growing in the, the grace and the, the knowledge is knowing, not just knowing about Jesus from the scriptures, knowing him personally. It's that daily relationship we can have, or that we do have, but we can take it for granted, can't we? We can forget about praying when he's with us. His spirit is in us. Thank God for the Holy Spirit. We take that for granted. So knowing him is even more important than knowing about him. So to him be the glory. That final amen there. We say amen, and there, there are a couple meanings to that. We, we say it expresses the desire, desire of our hearts, the affirmation of our faith, like something's going to happen. Amen. It expresses the joy of the heart. Amen, Lord. It expresses the declaration of resolution. Under the law, the Old Testament, they had a different idea of amen. In Deuteronomy 27, um, it was a declaration of the curse. Under the new covenant, when we say amen, it's an announcement of a great blessing and praise to God. Isn't that interesting? 
Even the word amen has different meaning for us. So finally, the day of the Lord is coming. And it's coming like a thief, it says. God will judge the ungodly, deliver his people, and establish his kingdom. And we need to remember, what is that kingdom going to be about? Righteousness. A kingdom where righteousness dwells. The heavens and the earth will be destroyed as we know them now. We must understand the times. The, the big question, how then should we live in light of what we just studied, which is true, which is going to happen. And how should we live accordingly in these last days? So I have no idea what time it is and how long that took, but um, we did get through most of what I believe we needed to talk about from 2 Peter 3, 1 Thessalonians. And I encourage you to uh, read and study some notes on your own, some cross-references, and get a, even a more full understanding of this. But wow, it's potentially overwhelming. But for those of us who are in Christ, what a relief. Am I the only one that looks at it that way? Am I kind of twisted in that? <laughs> it's like, when I look back at, when I look back at this one, go, I'm, saying, I'm standing up here saying, what a relief, and going, you know what I mean? It's, it, it seems like it's, it's kind of uh, out of sync with what is going to happen, but um, no, it's not, because we get to live in glory in a place where righteousness dwells. That is the eternal promise. Father, thank you for your word, and there's so much in here, Lord, and I pray that we would have a better understanding of not only your character, who you are, your nature, and what your word says, but the truth of what is still to come, knowing that we have the prophetic word confirmed. And thank you, Jesus, for all the prophecies that you fulfilled. That gives us such encouragement, and we thank you for the eyewitnesses that wrote about you, that recorded your words, and for those who were brave enough, strong enough, of course, in the strength of you, Jesus, that wrote warning us and wrote encouraging the church, knowing that you were hated, you are hated, and in this culture, they sometimes hate us as well. Nothing that we didn't know was coming. And we've been warned and prepared. And Lord, help us prepare and help us live according to what we've just, in light of what we've just read, Lord, in these last days, to give you glory, to draw people to you. Help us to share the truth of your word in love. But Lord, help us not to hold back. The time is short. So my final request is to please give us a sense of urgency. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.